DJ Simulationistas, sup, with Dr. D, Dan Raymer, and Dr. J, Janice Palaganis, coming at you from the Center for Medical Simulation in Boston, Massachusetts. So buckle up your mannequin, and let's roll. Welcome to DJ Simulationista Sup. You're here with Dan Raymer and Janice Pelaganis. So, Janice. Yes, Dan. Uh, I'm so thrilled because we got a, a message on our email mm-hmm. that uh, one of our staff looked on Facebook. You know what Facebook is? Do you have an account? I do have an I account. I'm, have a, an I'm account. a I'm a Facebook aficionado. I know I'm behind the it's, times. That's how you know when you're old. Yeah. You're on Facebook. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. I have an Instagram account as well. <gasps> you are with the times, DJ. <laughs> how do you like that? Check that. So, uh, so anyways, on our Facebook page, I guess it must be the CMS Facebook page, there was a sign of life. We have a listener, <laughs> and the listener <laughs> asked a question. Uh, the listener said they enjoyed our uh, podcast about improv and brought up the question of what do we think about participants doing improv or acting within simulations. Uh And I have a very strong opinion about this. I can't imagine you have a strong opinion about this. (laughs) I have multiple opinions about it. I mean, it's such a great question because I felt like I took it a hundred different ways, so... Okay, well, the world is much more black and white to me, so uh, why don't don't you go first? What do you think of the participants being asked to act in simulations? I I am, uh, I'm against it. You know, many sim centers will give their learners a slip of paper to say what role they are before they go into the case, and then they go in and they act out the very stereotype that I'm trying to break down in the debriefing. So it's like, why would you do that? Because they can't possibly know what that role is like if it's not their role. And I've seen it where people have not been given the instruction to act, and yet they go in and they start, you know, in the air saying, you know, doing all these movements in the air and saying they're hanging an IV or they're washing their hands or they're doing something and they're just kind of doing it in the air, uh-huh. which is always interesting. Yeah, so um, so unfortunately, I, I agree with you, great, you with great violence because it's much more interesting conversation <laughs> when we disagree with each other I and like I can make fun you of you. <laughs> so so I, I think that simulation is confusing by its very nature. You know, we don't go through life simulating things. We have spaces for that that we've been socialized to do. So, you know, so when you watch a movie, there's sort of a fantasy world that you put yourself in. When you read a book, a similar thing. But we don't have that generally in workplace situations. And so when you put people in that situation... You know, they're really, they're usually a little uncertain and confused about how they're supposed to act. And I think the 
the, the proof of that is even when you say to them, you know, you need to do everything and give the medications and start the IVs, they still wind up pretending, like you say, and I think it's a, just a really honest response on their part that they are not sure and they make an assumption that you couldn't really start an IV, so therefore I need to pretend that I'm starting an IV. And, and so I think that they just don't quite know how to act. If you ask them to act, <laughs> that's doubly confusing because then when you discuss their frames, where they're coming from, why they did what they did, how they interacted with others on the team, they're not sure how to answer because are they answering as themselves or are they answering as their character or somewhere in between? And so I think, you know, with rare exceptions, it's just not a good idea to ask people to do the acting. Let's take it another step, another direction. Let's talk about embedded simulated persons, which other sim centers call confederates or actors or embedded actors. When they go rogue, I call it going rogue, where you know you tell them what to do, you maybe you may even drive run them through the case a few times to make sure that they're getting the right tone and as standardized as possible, and then they go rogue on you. I just always chuckle because it so often seems like they they suddenly are in a position to get retribution from the people who have bothered them or annoyed them or offended them in clinical practice. And so <laughs> so they take on this role and it's a complete caricature, unproductive towards teaching people better teamwork, as you've said. Mm-hmm. And it's so easily dismissed by the participant who they're interacting with because it's usually just over the top and and so obviously exaggerated. But it's their one opportunity to really shine and really make this kind of funny caricature of an individual in their clinical life. I think you do have to really talk to people about that and forewarn them that that happens often and try to suppress the urge to do so. I think, as you say, practicing with them, doing a dry run, making sure they have quite specific points or lines that they're trying to depict. Our colleague Robert Simon often talks about making sure the ESPs or the actors or the Confederates, whatever you want to call them, make sure they have a really good and thorough backstory Mm -hmm. that is in their mind, they need to be thinking about what is driving them and what is their past experience and what's behind their character. And I think that's really helpful in getting people to act naturally mm-hmm. in a ESP situation. And I think for ESPs, having them involved deeply in the course or that case to really know what the objectives are. Because if there's anybody that goes rogue a lot, I think it's you. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I enjoy it. But you do it you you do it within the scope of the objectives and so it's enjoyable to watch when you go improv. You're not throwing them off, you're not over exaggerating, you're just making these comments that only the faculty would understand and it would and we're just kinda laughing behind the scenes and it's enjoyable. <laughs> <laughs> 
you just remind me of my early simulation experience. We had a uh, simulationista, one of the funniest people I've ever known. Uh-huh. And he was a fantastic actor. And he would take the characters as an ESP, he would take them way over the top to where all of us in the control room were laughing so hard we couldn't continue with the simulation. (laughs) And it just, it was legendary. You know, in retrospect, probably not all that fair to the participants. So you're saying still talk, even though you are Mr. Rogue. Mr. Rogue is telling the world that we should tell our faculty, even if they're in the know of the objectives, not to go off course. Do as I say, not as I do. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I guess it is sort of interesting to me that in my many years in simulation, it's just uh, remarkable how many people have kind of found their inner actor or actress given the opportunity, especially the ones who protest and say, oh, I'm a terrible actor. I, oh, okay, I'll do it. I'll do it. <laughs> and and next thing in, you know, they're, tears. Right, right. And they're doing Academy Award uh, level performance. <laughs> so I think there's an attraction of, of simulation to people who kind of have this little bit of acting envy or acting desire in them. Yeah. I actually, you know, as you know, I'm uh, uh, moving towards retirement and I was actually thinking of doing some amateur amateur acting as a, as a hobby. Was this so, sparked by your improv workshop? It, it was, actually. I, I thought of it. So, yeah. yeah, I thought of it afterwards because yeah. some of the people we did the improv workshop with were actors who yeah. did local comedy and things like that. And so uh, I, I have a friend in California who does that, and she auditions for parts and is often in local plays. I thought that might How be kind fun. of fun. Yeah. Can we do one of your, if you do decide to go that route, we're going to podcast one of your um, practices One of my plays. Auditions. Uh, one of my auditions, yeah. so that would be fine. I'll yeah. go improv on you. Yeah. Okay. I'll go rogue as the other character. Uh-oh. <laughs> You know, simulations, you know, sometimes you have really good days and some days it's really difficult. Mm -hmm. And even though you might do exactly the same scenario and make the same points in the debriefing, there's a quite a wide range of the feeling you get at the end of a day. And a lot of it has to do with the participants and the attitude of the participants and how they respond to the simulation. And so I always think that, you know, the ideal participant is someone who is confident, who who knows that they're good at their job, but really feels like they could find a fifth gear and improve their, you know, their clinical performance if they really are in tune with what they're doing in the simulation. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes you get people like that. In fact, there are a lot of people like that. It's very impressive how many people are really like that. But then there are people who kind of fall away from that ideal And so sometimes people seem to have the attitude of, well, it'll be embarrassing if I take this too seriously, or some people even, like, I really don't have anything to learn here, and so I better fool around just to let people know that I'm better than this. That's Uh, so interesting, because I'm thinking of the people that do 
improv on the fly that the participants unintended it seems like they're they're well-intended like they're not there to fool around they just don't know what to do and so they just start improving. I think that's true of most of them, mm-hmm. but I have certainly had many experiences where, you know, I'm not a psychologist, but it's pretty obvious that they're protecting their identity in some way sure. because of some discomfort. Yeah, and I think I love what you're bringing up because realism, I just feel like realism of a case is the fodder for the deep learning that can occur. That kind of behavior is contagious either way. So if you've got someone who's laughing and fooling around in the case, you'll see the other people also start giggling. And when you've got someone who's really into it and they're just trying to take care of the patient as if it was a real patient, it becomes very contagious. Everybody starts feeling like it's real or at least acting as though it's real and then they... They have, as, as we know from the research, more of an emotional experience, which is what we're looking to achieve in, in simulation. And so if we could just let our learners know that it is contagious, their actions are, are contagious, and so acting as though it's real is actually helping their colleagues that are in that course with them or that case with them, not just themselves. And the, and the faculty, because we go off of that. Right. Right. So the corollary to what you're saying, I think, is that the more seriously we take it as simulationistas, the easier it is for the participants to take that cue and follow along. Mm -hmm. And I say that knowing that if you make it so serious that it becomes absurd, then that's detrimental as well. And so, you know, it's fine to make a joke. It's fine to kid around, laugh about something. But I think you can do that and at the same time give a strong message of a seriousness of purpose. Mm -hmm. And and so finding that balance, I think, is a real skill of the simulation faculty. So I thought of something else. That is that we do use improv with our ESPs, at least the rules of improv. And I think that is important in at least establishing the scene and and the case and making it real for the participants. It, in my experience, always comes out better if it's unscripted, perhaps because none of us are professional actors and actresses, and so being able to pull off actual written lines in a way that's credible is a difficult skill. So just giving people enough guidance so they can react and say what seems appropriate in the moment, that's really what you're looking for. We often focus on the rules of improv at the beginning of a simulation and tell our ESPs, you have to be really clear with the learners who you are, let them know who you, who you think they are, let them know very explicitly where you are and that, you know, that interaction with them is better than signs and props telling them where they are and then let them know what's happening. And those are the four rules of improv, as you know, that, you know, if you say those four things, it orients the person you're working with. And it makes them more likely to accept your offer and to be able to engage. Right, right. It would be pretty weird if you told somebody that you were in the, 
emergency room and the patient had a rash and they were the consulting physician and you were the nurse taking care of the patient, if they suddenly responded to you, no, we're at a football game, quarterback just got tackled and he's broken his arm. They just won't reject (laughs) your offer. They'll deal with the patient. The rule of improv is really important and holds. So there's one little piece of the listener's question that we didn't address. And so when I reread their question, they said, you know, could you have the participants be the patient and convey their experience as a patient or perhaps learn their, you know, to what it's like to be treated by the other participants? Uh-huh. And I suppose that's possible. I think from all the things we've said, I wouldn't probably try it, but I'd sure love to learn from our listener or other listeners if they've had experiences where they've taken people out of their clinical role and put them in their natural, real-world role as a patient, because we're all patients. So when I went um, to get, when I was in my nurse practitioner school, it was at a time where standardized patients, you know, they were around, but you had a choice as a student to pay for a standardized patient's patient or work with someone who wasn't paying and you would each role play to be the patient. And that was great. I mean, on a one-on-one basis and for procedural skills and, and, and physical assessment, that was a great way to feel, you know, being a patient and giving your partner feedback on their practitioner role and approach. I think in a simulated setting, and that is one type of simulation, so to me that does work in a, I would say like a team-based setting. I suppose it could work. I can't really envision it, and I'm really interested to see what people are doing if they are doing that. I just think there's so much to uh, the actual patient, whether, well, first of all, if you have a mannequin in there as the patient, you know, you now have to worry about physical safety if you replace that with a, a human patient, a live patient. You know, you have to make sure that people know to keep the patient safe physically, even though it is a simulated case. And then also, when we do have standardized patients in a case, we standardize them. I mean, it's a whole day of training and making sure that if they touch here, this is your reaction, this is what you say. If they ask you this, this is what you say. And and a a learner just kind of jumping into the patient role wouldn't be able to achieve that. You know, I tend to agree with that. I, I just I just think uh, you know that that there are possibilities here. Like if you said to participants, have any of you had a recent hospital experience that you're willing to share with the group? I raise my hand, say yes, I yes I had an experience. I had uh, gout and went to the emergency room. Uh, And then you said to that person, okay, what we'd like you to do instead of you telling us about it is we're going to put you in a bed, you're going to be in the emergency room, and the other participants here are going to take care of you. So act the way you acted. It might be interesting. It might be. It might be interesting, and then that person, well debriefed, could compare what their actual hospital experience was to the simulated hospital experience and the 
practice and moves of the participants compared to the things that were done to them and and for them in the in the real setting might be a cool thing well yeah and it depends on your objectives like i think it's risky if you've got objectives that are other than experiencing what to what it is to be a patient with and being able to provide your colleagues with feedback if your objective is something completely different then it's risky because you might not get to those yeah um but if you do have an objective for specific to that experience i think it might be great except it might you know going back to your comment might be confusing Uh for the patient playing the role in the debriefing of the case the one thing that i have learned from the standardized patient world is if you do involve the standardized patient or the ESP in your debriefing to make sure in that debriefing they talk about the person in third person. So instead right. of saying, I felt, saying the patient felt. As the patient. As the patient. Uh-huh. So that, that alleviates some of the confusion. It, it's a really good point. I know I've certainly been in situations where I've been an ESP and I've been in a scenario and I've tried to put myself in the position of a participant. And I often am just marvel at how much I miss as the even the acting participant. It happened to me last week. I was in a labor and delivery course, and they needed an anesthesiologist uh, uh, to assist in the case. And I came into the room, and we did a procedure, and then... In the debriefing, when they played the video, I was quite shocked at all the things that had been said to me that I didn't hear. Oh, and so, so, so I spoke in the third person. So as the assistant anesthesiologist, I didn't hear you say X, Y, and Z. I think because I was intubating at that moment and really focused on getting the tube in the trachea. And, and so I think that can be really helpful because I, the, the participants appreciated how important it was to make eye contact with me and to be really certain mm-hmm. about their important information they were conveying to me because there I was even knowing what was supposed to happen <laughs> and being an actor and no pressure on me. I still miss things. And so that was a really important lesson about communication. So I think you're absolutely right, speaking from the position of the third person, speaking of the actor in the third person can be really educationally helpful. I hope we have more listeners, and I hope we get more questions. I know, that was fun. So they can email us, or they can uh, uh, post them on Facebook if they wish, and we'll try to address them. It always makes her an interesting conversation. I yeah. always enjoy talking to you, Janice. Same. Okay. Alright. Bye, Dan. Take care. Bye. DJ Simulationistas. Sup? Is brought to you by the Center for Medical Simulation. Find out more about CMS and learn about our simulation instructor training and course offerings at www.harvardmedsim.org. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>